Welcome to Boardroom and Beyond. I'm Deepa Mystery Candola. I've got 20 years experience in the corporate world and I became CEO of this tech business in 2022. Becoming CEO was more than a change in title. It was a step change in my career and personal life. I quickly realized there's no dark art to being a CEO. Lots of this comes down to lots of experience and common sense. Whether you're already in a senior role or considering your next step into leadership, join us for jargon-free insights into the successes and challenges of both being a first-time CEO and running a startup, now scale-up business. We'll cover everything from the boardroom and beyond. Today on our podcast, it's all about the little guy, both from the SME lens and the mid to low earner employee lens. As a CEO for an SME and many of my team being the outcome of a generation who grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, post the credit high and the credit low era, my size of business and generation are probably struggling with access to relevant and timely money guidance. There is a lot we've done as a nation around financial education and helping us think about retirement needs, thanks to auto-enrolling us all into a pension a few years back. However, today's podcast is more about economic education, exploring how we as business leaders purposely create products or deliver projects that help society and our people in the smallest way possible that we can to the biggest way. With that, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Steve Chilton from Blackfinch. Steve's viewpoint is that the SME sector and its employees are generally underserved for financial guidance. Low engagement with pensions continue to be an issue with savers often unaware of their pension performance and how they may impact their retirement goals. And it's not just about pensions here. You know, other workplace benefits are often suboptimal, which can impact staff morale and talent retention in the long term. So welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here, Deepa. So I just wanted to start with, I guess, you know, a bit of thinking around cost of living. So money is sim- something that obviously impacts us all from a day-to-day basis. You know, and I think there is this thing at the moment which is going around, you know, workplace PLC is finally having the right conversation around cost of living and it is the chatter in workplace today but I think a lot of us struggle with the basic day-to-day financial decisions you know of of what what we spend our money on things like subscription services grocery shopping and all, all the rest of it I was reading some recent research which actually backed that up so it was from the Center of Economics and Business Research which found that 73 percent of the UK fall below the sort of financial literacy benchmark when compared to similar developed countries like France, Canada and New Zealand. And then furthermore, the research went into to look at demographic splits and it was really poor, it halved for those below 40. And then of course we had the North and South divide, which again showed that you know financial literacy was higher in the South and then dropped to half again uh, the further up North you went within the UK. And it was quite astounding, a bit embarrassing as well. It reminded me of a statistic I read 20 years ago about the UK um, computer literacy, you know, and what we did to support all of that. So I guess, Steve, from your perspective, what top three themes do you think is driving this disparity between us and other developed countries? I mean, firstly, none of this surprises me. I think it's, if anything, it's a sort of a damning indictment almost about, you know, how we deal with 
financial education, financial literacy here in the UK. And unfortunately, I think it starts really early in life. You know, I've got young children. I've got three, age 10 down to two, and the two that are, that are at school. Financial engagement, financial literacy, financial education beyond the basic mathematics of just counting coins in a book just seems to be so low on the um, agenda in terms of importance and profile. And I think it's a really big missed opportunity. I think the sooner we can start getting children to understand the importance of, you know, sound financial behavior leading to, you know, good financial decisions later in life just means, I think, you know, a better outcome. For, for, for everybody. And so I would really like to see far more emphasis put by um, the government into the curriculum on financial guidance, financial support, financial planning. And I think it really has to start as young as at primary school level. You know, again, I always refer to my children in these scenarios, but they have absolutely no grasp of the concept of the value of money. You know, for them, £10, £20, £50, it's just a number. You know, how much effort goes into how you earn it or how you save it or retain it, they've got absolutely no idea. So I think really it starts um, in childhood. I think secondly, um, as an industry, the financial services industry has been far too slow to adopt digital solutions to increase levels of engagement and education and I think this really impacts on that demographic that you pulled out in the research deeper of, you know, under 40s having very high levels of, you know, or relatively high levels of financial illiteracy. And for me, it's the, because we aren't as an industry tackling the medium that they want to engage with that as effectively as we could do, you know, it is leading to levels of disengagement. And, you know, it's not helped by the fact that the older you are, the more cognizant you become about having a good savings pot, having a good pension, different investment vehicles for different requirements put to one side. I remember when I was in my 20s and 30s, you know, what I was bothered about was, you know, getting through to the next payslip, paying my rent, putting food on the table. You know, those big investment decisions just weren't important enough to me, you know, and so long-term savings were just a thought for for the future and so the more i think we can develop engaging digital solutions that really chime with that audience and have resonance and relevancy then i think the better we can make their financial futures potentially you know and a lot of it will come down to the individuals but i think if we can do this job better and there's so much you know, potential out there, particularly around you know, the advent of some of these new AI technologies that are coming through, because it does lead to massively high levels of personalization that you can start to sort of weave into this engagement, that you can actually be, I think, very, very specific about somebody's future financial potential if you take a number of current data points today and say, if you did this differently, today then you know in 20 years which seems a long way off but in 20 years that could mean a transformational experience for you i mean let's put it differently working in the financial services industry we're all aware of 
compounding and the impact of compounding so year on year on year on year if you've got a three or a five percent return on an investment vehicle that's going to build over time vast majority of the population don't understand even what the concept of compounding is and so therefore leaving money somewhere safe in the long term is by far the better thing for them to do as opposed to leave it in there for a year or two and then suddenly go, oh, I've got a reasonable pot of money there. I'll take that out because I need to go and put a deposit down on a house or I want to go and a life-changing holiday. And so because we aren't explaining these things in a particularly effective way, it's not leading to the right sort of behavior. And then it kind of leads me on to my third sort of point, really, that I think is a theme here, which is, again, as an industry, I just don't think we are helping those people that are most in need. So for example, where do, you know, if you are struggling with, you know, the cost of living or just making it through from payslip to payslip, where do you go to get practical financial guidance, you know, or help? You know, we've got this um industry of independent financial advisors who by the way do a terrific job, but I think for large parts of the financially illiterate, they're seen as a service for the more wealthy people. And so therefore, as an individual, you kind of think, well, where do I go if I want to um, get some financial help? You know, where do I go if I want to budget? Where do I go if I want to reduce my utility bills or consolidate my debt? And okay, there are some useful websites out there that can help you. But again, you are somewhat at the mercy of your Google search criteria and which websites that you go to and which ones do you trust and which ones don't you trust and you know, and it's an absolute minefield. And so I'd like to see sort of more employers looking at practical financial support, which isn't financial advice. It's not giving them more money, but it's giving them access to the resources or the people that can help them make, you know, sounder financial decisions. Brilliant, Steve. Thank you so much. That's that's a lot to unpack there, right? I guess, you know, from, from my perspective, there is something you've teed us up nicely for three sort of headline things to focus on. Really interesting for me. I love the fact counting the coins with your kids, right? So I've got an eight-year-old um, and he's starting to write his uh, letter to Santa because clearly money grows on trees. And, you know, we're, we're going through that with him at the moment because I think he had one term in his four or five years at school at the moment where they taught them how to spend one pound and split it between different goods and services that they would want to buy as kids. And you're like, well, really one term? You know, I think I think we do have a duty of care towards our children to give them the information they will need when they get to their 20s and 30s, at will, which takes me on to my next question shortly. Uh, and we could do that day to day. You know, when you go to the shops, here's a couple of quid. I think it's a fiver now. He's what's the average for a 10-year-old pocket money today. Um, and how are you going to spend that? And if you spend that that way, you don't get X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and I love that, right? And and I think the digital aspect that you talk about, and there's a lot to unpack there and what we could be doing as an industry, um, which we'll pick up or, or, um, later on and, and the whole wealth management piece. But I guess bringing it back to, yes, we can help our children today, but that whole generation, you know, of that um, age 30, 20 to 30 to 40, you know, they do lack the basic skills to save deposit for a house. And actually, how do we come out of being a renter? Um, what, where do we make reductions? Because actually, they don't know where to begin a lot of, a lot of these individuals. So, so even taking 
one or two of those things, how do you think, so there's something I could do as an as a, as a parent to help the next generation coming into the workforce, but what can employers do today to help their employees to bridge that gap? And I guess we've got the complicated layer now of virtual working. So we're a fully remote environment. I see my staff every quarter. Uh, we get together via Teams, but finances are quite, it's quite an emotional topic to talk about. I think couples don't even talk about, you know, the amount of debt and expenditure that they have, let alone how does an employer have that conversation? I think you raise a really interesting point. I think, you know, the shift in working practice from, you know, all of us being in the office to the more hybrid approach means that, you know, we seem to have lost the sort of the water cooler culture where staff will congregate in the coffee tea room and, you know, they wouldn't necessarily be starting a conversation around financial product services, but, you know, it provides that kind of environment for those sorts of conversations to develop. And so when you have more people working from a hybrid environment, that kind of spontaneity of interaction where these sorts of topics may be discussed within peer groups or, you know, or talked about within peer groups is, is reduced or, or in, some, in some instances lost. And so I think that actually puts a bit more of an obligation on an employer to deal with this um, issue and tackle it. And I think we're in this kind of culture where you've got relatively low levels of unemployment. The power play is very much in the employees rather than the employer's side, I think, in terms of the dynamics of, you know, who has the, the stronger hand when it comes to, you know, negotiating employment terms. And so I think more and more of the demographic that we're talking about. And we've spoken to some of them at Blackfinch in doing some, some market research. They very much see a wide and deep range of workplace benefits as being a really important aspect of their employment terms. Not because, you know, obviously everyone wants to earn a big salary and everyone wants to get the biggest bonus possible and everyone wants a large pension contribution, but there are a bunch of other workplace benefits that I think an employer can provide that adds a lot more value and gives the end user, you know, the employee, a lot more sort of comfort and support. And, I, and I'd like to see more employers tackle this kind of lack of financial knowledge within a particular cohort. You know, let's say, putting my optimistic glasses on, that the government can deal with the educational aspect for children, you know, relatively soon. And so the current generation that are coming through by the time they're in the workplace you know, have a relatively good level of financial literacy, we're still going to be looking at, you know, a couple of lost generations, you know, the millennials, the Gen Zs, for instance, who, you know, for whatever reason, went and had the good education at school and the employers probably have been neglecting dealing with the financial support and the guidance that they need. So, so I think having access to sound financial advice, you know, really embracing this whole digital first solution is 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 absolutely important and it, it doesn't need to be financial advisors i've started to see um growth of um this new kind of trade for want of a better word called financial coaches and these guys you know they're not regulated they're not offering financial advice they're not recommending financial products but what they are doing is they're taking an individual specific set of circumstances they're breaking it down into 
you know, well, what is driving your financial anxiety and what can you do with my support to tackle that financial anxiety such that you will start to feel better, you know, both emotionally and mentally about your financial situation. And it's not a silver bullet. This isn't something that's going to turn your financial life around in 24 hours. It's a long-term exercise where by increment and increment, you make small changes to the way that you spend, you make small changes to the way that you save, you make small changes to the way that you structure your personal debt, you know, you start to shop around a bit more for your utility bills, and and over time, that will start to make um, an improvement. And so I think an employer providing access to that sort of resource, now whether that's a resource that the employer pays for themselves or if the employer can negotiate some discounted rates or even if the employer can just find somebody that's reputable and trusted that they can recommend their staff to. But I think that sort of network of support, a framework of support for employees is absolutely critical. And and, and I guess the final thing for this particular demographic that we're talking about is, you know, we need to demystify financial products. We need to come up with a language that is easier to understand, that is less frightening or scary. You know, I think a lot of people just feel bad about their financial situation because they're made to feel bad because of the language that's used. So rather than punish people for poor financial behavior, shift the narrative to a more positive and goals outcome related narrative. So, you know, Rather than if you don't save money, you're going to have a dreadful retirement. It's if you save five pounds more this week, it might mean, you know, an extra couple of hundred pounds per week when you retire, you know, and it's just kind of really changing that narrative so that we start to resonate with the more emotional pull for these people than the, than the fear factor, I think, that a lot of people have seen and sensed from within the financial services sector to date. It's really interesting, Steve, you mentioned the narrative and I never actually thought of it as as a financial coach because it softens the language. So, you know, having worked in employee benefits industry, financial well-being, I'm surrounded by all of this stuff, right? But the language for me, so my own socioeconomic background, you know, I I haven't come from a private school. I'm quite different from the industry I work in. And you're right that the language is all wrong and the products and services that we tend to come out with, I'm going to put it quite crudely. So at the moment, we're seeing a lot of providers in our space come up with um, early wage access, right? The bigger question is, and, and you'd mentioned framework um, in, in what you were talking about a minute ago, you know, are employers thinking about that framework? You know, why am I offering these things? What is the causal link for me to have to offer an early wage access solution to my people? Why are my people having to get access their salaries before payday? What is going on? Because as an employer, I know I pay a fair wage. I do a salary benchmark exercise every year. I paid my staff really well, right? The other aspect of this is you've got as an employer, you know, since we've all gone into lockdown and now we're coming back, employers, though they talk about wanting their staff back in the office, they're probably in the office once, twice a week. So they don't have the travel costs anymore. So employees are technically saving that because we haven't taken, we haven't reduced people's salaries but yet they're still struggling with 
day-to-day expenses. So what what is that framework that I'm offering uh, as an employer rather than just shoving in benefits as a sticking plaster? You know, what's the latest rage that's coming up? You know, we're all talking about pension contributions and that continues to be a trend. Um, oh, now we're talking about salary access and things like that. So, so that's really interesting. I think employers need to take a step back think about the framework and the narrative. Financial coach sounds lovely, I think, compared to financial advisor. You've got to see a wealth planner, it softens it, um, which takes me on to my next question. Because in your opening, you it sounded like there was a lot of sort of accessibility issues. And around two things I picked up, one is around the digital aspect. So, you know, you're under 40s, are doing everything online and actually there are lots of silver surfers out there as well right so I'm not I'm not saying there aren't people above that age that are but I do everything on my mobile so how am I accessing relevant information that resonates with me but the other aspect is you know I don't have a financial advisor I admit that today you know and I probably should given given my age and probably where I live and all the rest of it now and stage of life and having a child and all all that jazz that comes with it but I guess there's an aspect you know there is an accessibility issue because a I can't get access to the initial financial advice digitally so that becomes a barrier the other aspect is that it's going to cost me money. Why am I going to spend money on this now? You know, it's an investment. Okay, but what am I going to get back? But actually, traditional advice givers won't come to people like me. So so what, what can be done from your viewpoint that can help remove that barrier to get access to good advice with an advisor? Because they won't come to me. They haven't today, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and And before I answer that question, which I will, I just kind of want to go back to one of the things that you sort of you touched on previously, which is employers with the range of benefits that they provide, and you've seen an increase in those sort of early salary kind of things. And what I've seen, because I've been doing a lot of research into sort of workplace benefits, particularly within the SME sector, is what I've seen is too many employers going for the quantity approach of let me just throw a whole bunch of benefits at my employees and hope that enough of them are valuable enough to stick as opposed to being a bit more surgical and targeted about understanding your workforce and putting in place the benefits that are really going to help them out. And I've got mixed views on early salary access benefits because I'm not sure it necessarily resolves the problem and sometimes it can almost exacerbate the problem because Absolutely, yeah. you're, you're giving them access to money that they're going to spend before next month's commitments come around. And, and so it's a sticking plaster, right? Yeah. So you're yeah, in yeah, this yeah. loop. Yeah, you get into a doom loop almost, don't you, from an individual's point of view. So I'm, I've, I've got mixed views um, on that one. But, but going back to your question around um, accessibility for those employers and, you know, obviously... It comes down to the question of, you know, do they have the money to invest and is it a right thing for them to invest in and so forth? I think we've, we've talked about independent financial advisors and I, and, I, and I think you touched on it yourself and I too, you know, yes, I have had financial advice in the past when I've bought property or put in place a will um, and so forth and powers of attorney and, and whatnot, but I don't go to my financial advisor regularly annually you know every two or three years it's kind of like i use them when i when i need to 
and I'm probably, you know, at the end of the spectrum where, you know, my financial situation is complicated enough to probably warrant a bit more interaction with a financial advisor. However, I think because you call them a financial advisor, they have this branding problem where people just think that they're, you know, they're there for the wealthy or they're there for the rich. They're not there for me. And so the more that an employer recognizes that and, and thinks, well, actually then do I want to provide my staff with, you know, something a bit more generic that's a little less elitist, that could be a good way for the uh, employer to improve um, accessibility. I think also where traditionally maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, we may have gone to the high street banks or building societies for financial advice. I think the fact that they are closing, you know, at a rate of knots, that there's fewer banks and builder societies that are open. And also, it's a strange thing to say, but whereas 20, 25 years ago, the bank manager was a, you know, respected pillar of the local community, I just don't think bank managers for a high street bank have that kind of, that gravitas anymore. And so I think a lot of people will just be put off by the fact of if I go into the bank and I ask for some financial advice, I will bank with HSBC, I'll walk out with a HSBC pension, a HSBC ISA and a HSBC mortgage. And it won't be independent financial advice. It might be tailored or we call it tied advice in the industry where your advice is tied to the provider that you work for. So I think that prevents people from going out Pension providers have also got a lot of work to do in this space too. I think too many of the larger pension schemes have focused on the large enterprise clients for their point of view. Say say you're a, an Aviva or an LNG, an LNG or a Scottish Widows or whoever you are. It's going to be far more commercially beneficial for you to go to an employer that employs 10, 12, 15,000 employees and you sign them all up onto your scheme because you're getting economies of scale and you're getting loads of, you know, assets under management from the get-go and, you know, the management fees that you can earn from them. And I think they just don't have themselves set up to go out to the, the SME sector and offer them similarly good pension products. And so therefore, we find ourselves in this situation where a lot of SMEs kind of by default have almost selected Nest as their workplace pension provider for auto-enrollment. Now, there's nothing wrong with Nest. You know, it does what it says on the tin. It, you put your money in, it gives you a return of about 3% a year. But, you know, if you look at Nest's performance over the last few years, quite a large proportion of its funds are linked to government bonds and guilds, which certainly over the last two years have underperformed. And Nest, we have a, we have a saying within sort of Blackfinch when it comes to investment funds, you've either got something that's actively managed or you've got something that's a bit more passive or set and forget, as we call it. And Nest is quite often, you know, a bit more at the passive end. And so they've got these big algorithms that deploy an individual's, you know, investment across the fund with a proportion of guilt and a proportion of bonds and then a proportion of listed equities. And then it's just set and then they walk away and it's not actively managed. And so therefore, you've got a return of maybe 3% per annum coming from a pension fund. But when you've got inflation running away at 10% plus for two years, 
that's a squeeze. That's a squeeze on your real income when you're when you're into retirement. And so, you know, I think I'd like to see much more sort of activity and engagement levels from the pension providers that says, you know, use your pension to your own benefit. Don't necessarily leave it to us. And and this actually goes back to one of my colleagues at Blackfinch, a guy called Alex. When we first um, started working together, you know, he bemoaning the fact that he'd often go out and, you know, be with his friends. And he's in his mid-30s. So he's right within our cohort. And a lot of his friends would say, oh, I'd love to have a little bit of spare cash so I could go and speculate on the markets and have a little bit of fun trading stocks and shares. And, and Alex's view is, well, you are, but you just don't know it. And they kind of look at him quizzically and say, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, if you've got a pension, you'll play in the markets. You're just not actively playing the markets. Someone else is playing them for you. So the more I think pension providers can actually make the funds that you choose easier to sort of interact with and select certain proportion of your money going into certain types of funds. And, you know, some people might want to go for things that are more sustainable and more ethical investments that may not necessarily have the same return that something, you know, that is perhaps a little more listed tech or pharmaceutical or ethically not in the same ballpark as something that's like a solar installation or a wind farm or so forth. And, and, and this is quite interesting, actually. The government are trying to tackle this issue, but I worry about the pension industry's ability to take this on board. So Jeremy Hunt at his Mansion House speech earlier this year, I think he's recognised that there is this sort of inefficiency within pension funds that there's, there's two, two factors here. The first factor is, are savers getting the best returns on their investments possible because a lot of the pension funds are just a bit too safe? And also, is enough of the cash that's being invested into pensions being reinvested into UK PLC, you know, so the future of our economy? And so Jeremy Hunt in his mansion house speech last year said he'd like to see pension funds allocate around about 5% of their fund investments to unlisted equities. So businesses on the AIM market, for example, or businesses that are you know, within a venture capital trust or businesses that are getting... Yeah, and that, that's hurt my interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's much Whenever pension changes come up, you're yeah. like, well, what, what's that all about? But this time I was like, oh, wow, we're finally doing something. But I think in, just picking up on that point, I think in the autumn statement, which is due today, I saw something in the headlines, and, and you probably might know more than I do on this, that they're looking at how the ISA saving portal can be opened up so I could potentially see where my funds are invested and start playing the markets through my banking app, for example. Um, and if that happens, I mean, someone like me could stop trading, right? Normal savers day to day, who are, most of us do have an ISA. Exactly. And, and that's the engagement, I think, that we need to get. If you feel that you own where your money's being deployed, then you're going to feel more engaged and then you're going to care more about it. And arguably, you're going to probably put more in to your investments and therefore you're going to be better placed in, you know, in the future for, you know, achieving your financial or your retirement goals. So, so I think all of these things are interlinked. But the other thing that I'm quite passionate about is not only, you know, am I passionate about employees in the SME workforce getting, you know, access to the right resources and tools that they need to make financial improvements to their you know life but it's also 
making sure that we as a country are investing in the future of our economy by ensuring that you know investments are going into the right places of the economy to ensure future growth. And this is where pensions kind of overlink with this whole mansion house thing. If 5% of pension funds, and bearing in mind we're talking about what are the trillions size industry, if 5% of trillions was invested into unlisted UK equities on the AIM market, that's a massive shot in the arm for those companies in terms of their growth potential. And I think that there is an accessibility issue. I mean, you know, a lot of startups fail in the first five years because they are hunting for that investment. Now, if I as an investor felt, oh, I want to, you know, support something more that that provides something that supports the UK economy, people would start thinking about the ethical investment side of things as well. And that's a whole different podcast. I think just want, want to take it back on a couple of sort of headlines that, that you brought up. So, you know, working in the online EB space, I think you're absolutely right. You know, employers are just going for that quantum of employee benefits. And often I talk to HR leaders, finance directors and so forth, and they just keep putting more and more in. Now, I've worked with online technology for 20 years, right? And I'm like, the data is there. You know your demographic, you know what's happening through the trends, the benefits that they're opting out of to release more cash into probably taxable pay. So if you've got a trend where employees keep selling holiday, what's driving that? You know, is it that it's probably not a work-life balance thing. They're trying to top up their salary in a different way. And where where is that holistic thought process, you know, in the beginning of what you were saying from an employer's perspective, when they are putting these things in? And, you know, I think UK employers have moved forward in offering a lot more to their people. And compared to comp- countries like the US, we do have quite a comprehensive standard benefits offering and holidays and so forth. But let's not just scattergun and add more. Think about your people and their demographic needs. Don't just go to an exhibition or, you know, receive something on LinkedIn and like, I've got to be part of that party and offer it kind of thing. But I just wanted to to pick up on something. You, You mentioned elitist and large employers and, you know, how these sort of service providers are really focused on that. And, and I get quite passionate about this. So, you know, first time CEO, my first venture was all about democratizing the employee benefit space. Why is technology in our space only available to the large employers? It's about the SME, the small players. And, you know, we built a panel of providers and we were like, well, I know you don't want to talk talk to these small employers, but there's 13 million of those in the UK. It's probably grown even more so now, now, now right? But This elitist point, I think there's a massive equity piece here, right? As service makers and givers and and leaders of these brilliant businesses that we all work for day to day, what are we doing to help reduce that workplace socioeconomic divide? A, are we recognizing it when we're making our products? And B, when we're going out there, so you you talked about the bank manager, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and we talked about financial coach as opposed to advisor. But when we're creating all these wonderful products and services and delivering these projects for workplace PLC, are we thinking about this socioeconomic divide that exists in the workplace and, you know, the recipients of our services? I think probably not. I think you raise a really good point, this whole sort of democratization has been slow to come around and I'll go back to the example of pension companies and why they seem to offer great services to large enterprise clients but not such good services to SMEs and and it all comes down to 
the commercials and the economics. Insofar as we have a pension industry in the UK where we have a regulator that says, I want value for money to be the key criteria for why a pension is selected. And so a lot of the pension companies who get recommended to a large enterprise client by an intermediary, um, so it's often an intermediated sort of sale or transaction, the intermediaries will often look at that and go, well, value for money, yes, we want to make sure that they've got flexible pension funds, that they've got a lot of choice, that there's a good return, but actually it comes down to price and cost and how much the charges are. And so a lot of these large pension companies are charging very competitive annual management fees to the pension end user. And that's fine when you've got 10 to 15,000 employees. But when you go to somebody that's got 100 employees or 150 employees, you can't service that client with the same annual management charge because you have costs associated with acquiring that client, costs associated with servicing and maintaining the relationship with that client. And so what happens is they'll go, the client this is, will say, well, the management fee, one of the big pension companies is charging that large enterprise client is half what I'm being offered by the same pension provider. So therefore, I feel penalized. I feel that's unfair. So we haven't got this level playing field. And I think we get confused between value for money and price. And I think there's a big thing about, you know, value for money isn't the cheapest. Value for money is what's the best, what's going to give me the best return in the long term. I don't think it's a bad thing to pay a slightly higher fee for a product that's going to arguably give you a larger retirement pot. It just means you may have to be more engaged with it and make more conscious decisions to activate, you know, or to be active with that with that product. But that, I think, is value for money. It might be more expensive at a headline rate on an annual fee, but it's better value for money. And I think that's a really important area around the whole sort of elitist thing. Elitism isn't about being the cheapest. I think elitism needs to be about being the best and we need to stop saying it's elitist and talk about homogenous and making sure that everybody gets the best and if that means everybody pays a little bit more but everybody gets a slightly better outcome then you know i think that's a great outcome now i'm conscious that i'm sort of living in a slightly more fantasy world with these sorts of statements because it will take us a long long time as a you know as a country and as an industry to sort of get there but I think there's enough of us now that are starting to ask the right questions of what is value for money and how can we make value for money actually result in a better outcome for the saver as opposed to just it all being on price. Yeah, and another thing that reminds me of a podcast that I did a, a, a couple of sessions before this one, as we start seeing more decision makers that probably come from a similar socioeconomic background to ourselves, because it's in the forefront of our lived experience, we will start thinking about value for money at, across the full membership range or whoever touches, buys, you know, accesses our products and services. So 
it, it might happen sooner, Steve, right? You know, glass, glass many half full because there is a sea change I'm seeing in UK boardrooms for sure where the profile of boardrooms and decision makers is changing at a pace of knots now because we're seeing new leaders coming through to, to the boardroom. But I think, you know, all of us, at any level within a business, when we're thinking about delivery, how are we resonating? How are we connecting with this particular service? So everyone is treated equally. I mean, I'll go into my final question in a moment, but I remember when I started uh, 15 or 18 years ago in the industry, we used to do these pension workshops and education. We used to divide those by salary demographic, right? Because there was a group of people within the businesses that I've worked for that we wanted to do targeted financial advice to. And I was like, well, what about these people, you know, who are coming through the ranks and will be that future buyer? And now we talk about the future generation in wealth management and everyone's really excited, you know, because workplace is the way to find the future individual advice customer now. But we should have been having those conversations 15, 20 years ago, right? But, you know, by the by that's done, we're now going to change things going forward. Just want to go on to my final question. So we've talked about employers. We've talked about industry. I just want to bring it back down to the employee level. So, you know, there's something we can't change. Financial literacy for all of us is largely governed by our individual characteristics and attitude to money, which has either come from parental influence or schooling. But for those that perhaps have missed the boat and are in that 40 and below, 30 and below category, we talked about financial coach. You, you mentioned people Google things when they probably panic and think, oh, I need to do something. Or when I renew my mortgage or take out my first mortgage, I see a financial advisor broker and, and get sort of tied products. But what, what can I do as an individual day to day to help improve my understanding of this whole financial education, massive topic that's ongoing throughout my whole life cycle? So you know, what should I be doing weekly, monthly from morning point? I mean, it's, it's a great question. And let's put what your employer can do to one side, because we've kind of explored that in, in, you know, quite extensively in this conversation. But I think as an individual, it starts with your family and your peers. I think you need to speak to people that you trust who are around you. And maybe try and find somebody that you can sort of see as potentially a financial mentor. So try and identify people around you who have made good financial choices throughout their life and just try and, you know, understand a bit from them. Because I think, you know, this responsibility for a, a good financial life is not a responsibility that sits outside of an individual. The individual's got to own it as much as the people around them. So you can't just have external forces pushing financial guidance, financial solutions onto you, you've got to want and be receptive to those solutions. It's a two-way street. So I think finding mentors around you is is really, really important. You know, and again, I've kind of touched back to what can the industry do, because I think the industry's got a big obligation around this. And, and we did touch on this earlier, that the narrative and the language that's used is, I think, not right. It tends to preach rather than to encourage. It tends to punish rather than to reward. And so I'd like to see more non-judgmental financial advice. You know, hell, we've all made a bad decision financially. 
I'd challenge anybody to say, look me in the eye and say everything that they've done has been financially sound. We've all spent money on things that we shouldn't have spent the money on and then regretted it later. Starts with a student loan, I think, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) And so having that kind of network of people around you that says, you know what, we've all done it. Everybody's made a bad financial decision. And the key thing is, is not to beat yourself up. It's not to sort of disappear into this doom loop of, oh, woe is me. I'm never going to get out of this. You know, I think there are some practical things that you can do. And it does start with your friends, family, and your peer group, fundamentally. And then it's about, you know, starting to use more trusted external sources. So be that what you find on um, the internet. And, you know, let's not forget, we've got some, you know, phenomenal resources online, My Money Expert, those sorts of places, which do a great job. Then if that can be augmented and supplemented by employers, and and I think we just need to recognize that when we talk about employers, we need to include SMEs in that language, that SMEs aren't some forgotten cohort of employers because they just happen to be a bit too small for people to deal with. I think as an industry, we have a, we have a responsibility to make sure that those employers are as serviced as well as the larger employers, such that their employees are getting the same access to education, knowledge and materials that everyone else is. It's really interesting about the family and peers and just having that conversation to start off with. And I suppose when you start talking, you start acknowledging things. Um, You know, we plan for our health day to day. Now we've all become quite health conscious as a nation it's now the money conversation, right? Why are we uncomfortable to, to have that? And and I suppose there's a cultural thing there as well. Like, you know, everyone knows I'm, an, I'm Indian and Indians love to talk about money. It's a dinner table conversation. But I think, you know, the British culture is quite reserved when it comes to talking about how much do you earn and, you know, how much debt are you in and so forth. So I think, yeah, having that conversation with your safe group of people is a brilliant start because they want ultimately what's right for your own well-being, right? You know, the heart's going to be in the right place. I've really enjoyed our session, Steve. Thank you so much. Um, I've taken lots away. I was trying to summarize three top things, but I think, you know, it is from an industry employer and individual perspective. And, and I guess, you know, just recognizing that poor financial literacy is just stopping all of us from making good money day-to-day decisions, let alone thinking about the future, you know. So if we can get that right, we can start thinking about that, well, in my 50s, I might want to work part-time or have different choices of working for a charity or different employers, you know, and then think about retirement because it frees you up, you know. And there's a lot of studies that back up and, and, you know, we talked about those at the beginning that there is a lack of knowledge in the UK and there is a lack of confidence, which ultimately affects our emotional well-being and how we plan for the future. Because I'm sure the way, the cadence that we work at today, we probably don't want to do that into our retirement. You know, we want to fill our lives with things that we genuinely do enjoy. And, you know, whilst many employers are taking steps to focus on their employees because they know ultimately if they focus on these things, they have a more engaged, happier workforce. It needs to be targeted and it needs to be resonating with their individuals and the digital aspects a big part of that. The language is key, I think, as well. But the last part of it, you know, as service makers, yes, we're starting to take steps to change that narrative. But in your last bit, you mentioned, you know, as individuals, what are we doing? 
we have that duty of care on ourselves, you know, perhaps focusing an hour a week, you know, you do meal plans, you go to the gym, you go for walks, you think about all those things. But what have I done this week to think about my financial future, you know, for my short-term goals and long-term goals? I think we will need to make that space. I completely agree. And I think, you know, it's almost a taboo topic that we all stick up, not all of us, but a lot of people just stick their heads in the sand and go, I can't cope with it. I can't change it. Therefore, I'll ignore it. And actually, that's not the answer. You know, it's it's step by small step. It's increment by increment. And it takes time and there's no silver bullet and it's hard work. But I think we all have that capability within us. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this chat actually deeper this morning. So it's got me thinking about a few things a little bit more deeply than, than perhaps I was beforehand. You know, I think the more we can provide that network of support and structure, but it comes down to those individuals taking ownership of this situation so that they're not financially disabled in future lives, they're financially enabled in future life. And I loved your example about, you know, maybe I want to work for a charity in my late 40s and early 50s rather than, you know, be a corporate workhorse. Well, hell, wouldn't it be brilliant if more people were able to make that choice because they changed their habits and behavior when they were a lot younger? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if you could read the whiteboards behind me, but uh, I don't want to work like this in 10 years time, right, for a corporate PLC. So that is one of those things. Um, when I was living with my parents and they were paying the mortgage, I, I did go out and do lots of charity work and really enjoyed it. It was so enriching to your soul, right? And I miss that. So how am I going to free myself in the next 10 years to be able to do that? And, and that's something I do think about. But I think a lot of us want to do more, especially when COVID hit us. You know, it was two years of a very different headspace. But um, I'm going to bring it to a wrap now. I'm conscious of time. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our session, Steve. And um, thank you so much. And any last words for our listeners? Well, thank you very much for listening to me. I hope it's been interesting. I think it's a case of, as business leaders within the SME space, let's make sure that we don't forget the little man and that the little man is front and centre of everything we do and think about moving forward. Totally agree on the SME front. Thanks a lot, Steve. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. You can listen to us for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you have. To find out more or to connect with us, find us on LinkedIn and follow the podcast to get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks for listening and see you next time.